I'd like to invite you to uh, just take a few minutes, and I think we should just pause for a second here and maybe say a prayer for the people of Paris, um, for folks in France and all that they're going through. Some of you, most of you probably know there's, there's a terrorist attack, multiple locations, and um, there's a lot of people hurting and reeling over there. So let's, uh, let's go ahead and just lift them up to the Lord right now together. Father, this is one of those moments where um, the brokenness of our world just shines forth. Uh, and there's some people that are hurting in Paris. There's people who've lost loved ones. There's families that are broken. There's people living in fear and chaos. And, uh, and your promise, God, is, is that in the midst of all that, that you will be at work. And so that's what we're asking for. That's what we're just coming to you to to remind ourselves of, but just to say, Lord, go and meet those people. Meet uh, people who are hurting, who've lost in a significant way, maybe for the first time that they would open their lives to you. Uh, but comfort and give and give peace, healing, bring hope, God. You, you promised that you would take even the worst, most broken, awful parts of our world and you will rework them for your glory and for the good of those who love you. I pray specifically this morning, God, for those who are Christians in that community, that they would rise up, that they would be filled with courage and boldness and peace to, to be your hands and feet and to offer to love and healing in that, in that city that's so broken right now. So Holy Spirit, again, this is one of those moments where we don't even quite know exactly what to pray, but we have confidence that your Spirit intercedes on our behalf and we agree with you, Lord, in that. And be glorified, God. Help us to hold tight to the confidence that you are sovereign and powerful and majestic and merciful and mighty. Give that same confidence to the people of Paris. That's our prayer. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Well, hey, as we continue this morning and worship, I'm going to invite our ushers forward to receive our morning offering. And as... As we do that together, I want to remind us that we are coming towards the end of a series that we've been exploring together on what it means to let God begin to transform us on an emotional level. And the idea of the series that we've been in, and we're we're really almost done with, next week's our last week, is that at the heart, at the center of spiritual maturity, is not just having a lot of knowledge of God, but it's... It's having a deep emotional experience of God. It's inviting God into the deepest parts of our lives so that we can be shaped emotionally. It's becoming people who don't just have high spiritual IQ, but people who have high spiritual EQ. And this morning, we are looking at what is perhaps the defining quality of a, of a Christ follower, the defining quality of a church even that has good spiritual EQ. Today, we are talking about what it means to love well. Today we're talking about what it looks like to be Christ followers who love like Jesus, to be a a church family that reflects the love of God in this world in the right way. And friends, I am convinced that the primary job of the church in the world is to love well. That above all the other things we are called to do and called to be, We are to be people marked so obnoxiously with love that the world has no choice but to stand up and notice. 
I'll tell you where I get that from. It's from the Word of God. This is 1 John chapter 4. This is what the Apostle John writes to the early church. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. You see, what John is telling the church here is this. Love is so central to who God is that it is impossible to know Him and not be marked by this overwhelming quality that He encapsulates, that He is. John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. This is Jesus weighing in on the subject. This is what He has to say about love. A new command I give you. This is, this is crazy stuff from Jesus. Because Jesus teaches a lot. He's talking to his disciples here. And he's taught a lot of things to his disciples. Most of the time, when Jesus teaches, this is how he starts. You have heard it said. In other words, I'm going to tell you about some stuff that you've already heard of, you've already read, you already know, and I'm going to unpack it for you, and I'm going to help you understand it the right way, in a new way, from my perspective. But in this instance, he does not say that. He says, a new command I give you. This is going to be brand new stuff. And I can just see Peter like whipping out a notebook, ready to write it down, or John pulling out his iPhone, dialing up voice notes and hitting record, like, we got to capture this. A new command I give you, love one another. Really, Jesus? It doesn't seem all that new. But then he continues, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So what Jesus tells his followers here is that the thing that is going to make the world sit up and take notice and designate us as the ones who follow him is not our doctrines, not, our, not the sum total of all of our good works, not our really cool Sunday morning services. Man, those people do a service. They must be followers of Jesus. That is not... What's going to designate us as Christ followers? It's the fact that we love one another, but there's a specific way in which we're called to love. How? How are we to love one another? Jesus says, as I have loved you. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. This isn't whatever love means to you. This isn't love as the world loves. This is Jesus saying that there is a love that he will model for us, that he will demonstrate for us and show to us. And that's the way we're to love each other. John 15, just in case you missed it, two chapters ago, Jesus speaks again. My command is this, he says. Love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You see, for Jesus, there is not a quality more defining of his people than love. It is central, it is paramount. You cannot take it away or erase it or put an asterisk next, next to it. First John 4.20, John again continues the seriousness of this subject. Listen to how seriously the Bible takes Christ followers loving one another. Whoever claims to love God... John writes, yet hates his brother or a sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. You see, John just calls it out here. He just, he just lays it on the line. You love God, you say you love God, but you haven't even seen him. Your brother, your sister, they are right here in front of you, standing, standing there in flesh and blood. And you can't even love them, but you claim to love God. Liar! 
untrue. You've missed something. There is a disconnect somewhere in your understanding of Christ and who He is or in your uh, your ability to follow Him or receive what He's trying to give you. Because if you can't love your brother or sister and yet you claim to love God, something is not connecting. See, even Jesus says, love your enemies. He says in, in Luke 10, 27, he says, love the Lord your God. What's the number one thing? What's the first and foremost commandment of all? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind. And, and, Jesus adds, love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, these two things cannot be separated from one another. You cannot love God and not also love your neighbor. Impossible. And so to love well has got to be something that we take real seriously, friends. I'll say it again. The primary job of the church in the world is to love well. And the question this morning is how? How do we love well? How do we love in a way that actually reflects the love of God into this world in which we live? What does it look like to love in a way that distinguishes us as disciples of Jesus Christ? Philippians chapter 2. If you have a Bible this morning, grab it, pull it out. We're going to be in Philippians chapter 2. We're just going to be looking at a couple verses here. Um, If you're using a pew Bible, we're on page 951 in one of those Bibles in the rocks in front of you. As you turn, let me tell you this. This morning we are really looking at something that's called the doctrine of the incarnation. This is the belief that we have as Christians. This is this central belief that we hold as Christ followers that God is three persons and yet one being. He's Father, He's Son, He's Holy Spirit. And the Son, the second member of the Trinity, comes to earth, incarnates, enters into our world as Jesus, and when He does, He becomes fully human, 100% man, while continuing to be fully God. 100% divine. And the reason this doctrine is important for us to discuss today is that Paul, in this passage, says this is the model for how we're to love one another. You want to know how to love one another as Christ has loved you? You want to know how to love like Jesus loves? Paul says, here's the, here's the ticket, here's the key, here's the thing that will unlock what that means for you. How do we love the way Christ is loved? What does it look like to love like Jesus? Paul says, use the incarnation as a model for loving well. Look at the incarnation of Jesus and model that, follow that example as you seek to love one another. This morning we're going to talk about incarnational love. We're going to talk about what it is, we're going to talk about what it isn't, And we're going to talk about how we can embrace it. You see, Paul is writing in this letter, in the letter of Philippians, uh, to the church at Philippi. And and this church was a church where some relationships had started to go sideways. There are some people in this church who've gotten focused on self. They've... They've kind of started to adopt their preferences and prerogatives as most important. And this has begun to divide the church into various competing groups. This is a situation where personal opinions are now leading to pride and arrogance and division. And so Paul is calling this church back and he's saying, Church, 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 remember, wait, hold up. Remember what it looks like to have relationships that reflect Jesus. Let's remember what it looks like to love one another as He has loved us. Philippians chapter 2. We're going to pick it up in verse 5. Here's what Paul has to say. He says, Church, in your relationships with one another, 
have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. The word mindset in the Greek is the word phreneo. It's a word that means to determine or uh, to approach something in a certain way. It means to approach something with a certain perspective or a certain posture. And so what he's saying is this. He's saying set your minds. Determine to have the same approach in your relationships with each other that Jesus has in his relationship with you. Take the same posture. Take the same approach to your relationships with each other that Jesus takes when he approaches you to have a relationship. And now he's going to give us the Jesus approach. He's going to unlock or unpack the Jesus approach for us. By the way, these next few verses are believed by most scholars to be a hymn or an early confession um, for the church. These are the words that Christians, the very earliest Christians would say to remind themselves of who Jesus Christ was. This is really rich, really early in Christianity stuff. In your relationships with one another, verse 5, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Or some translations will say, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, to be held onto or clung to. Rather, he made himself nothing, but taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even Death on a cross. Now, there's a lot in this passage, and we're just going to really scratch the surface today, but the stuff we're going to get at is literally life-changing, if you will receive it. The first thing that Paul tells us in this confession, the first thing he wants us to understand is very simply this. Jesus is fully God. The Greek word Paul uses here in verse 6, translated uh, being in very nature God, is the word morphe. It means the very essence of something. What Paul is saying here is that Jesus, on the deepest, most unchangeable level, is God. Fully. Not watered down at all. Jesus is 100% divine. But then he goes on in the passage and he tells us, That he doesn't cling to that. That he doesn't hold on to that. That even though his 100% divinity never ceases, all the rights and privileges that he has as God, he releases. He lets them go. He doesn't hold on to them. He doesn't demand to be treated like God. Now, let's stop for a second and ask. How does this truth, how does this truth that Jesus is fully God and yet lays down his rights as God and becomes fully human, how does this speak to what Paul is addressing here? How does this answer the question, how do we love each other well? Here's what Paul's saying. Paul is telling the church this. In the same way Jesus entered fully into our world, our lives, our reality, because he loved us, we too must seek to enter in to the lives of each other. He's saying the incarnation of God in Jesus is the model for how to love. And incarnational love is selfless. It says this. It says, let me enter in. Let me 
try to understand. Let me walk in your shoes and see through your eyes and even feel what you are feeling. This means that all the time, but especially when we have conflict, friends, this passage is written in the context of some conflict. All the time we're to act this way, but especially in conflict, we're to lay down our perspectives and our prerogatives and our personal preferences in order to try and understand where the other is coming from. Instead of holding on to my rights, instead of being right and giving advice and holding on to my correctness, I'm going to try to understand you. That's what Jesus does. And Paul says that should be our approach to our relationships with our brothers and sisters. In 1963... Martin Luther King Jr. arrived in Birmingham, Alabama. His goal was to lead a peaceful march against segregation and racial injustice in that city. And yet days before the protest was to take place, the city's sheriff went to the courts and secured a court injunction, making the march illegal. And so, going to the city and knowing the cost of going through with the march, Dr. King decided to march anyway, and when he did, he was arrested and he was thrown in jail. Several days later, still in jail on April 16th, 1963, in his jail cell, King was given a copy of the Birmingham News in which he read from his uh, jail cell a letter that was published. And this letter was written to Martin Luther King Jr. by eight pastors and a rabbi from that community. And what the letter said was this. It said, you should have waited. You should have been more patient. You should not have pushed forth with your agenda. And so King, reading this in his jail cell, sat and composed a response that is now a famous part of American literature. It's called Letter from a Birmingham Jail. And it's a very, very long document. It's a long, long response. But let me just read a small portion of King's response to that letter for you today. He writes this. I guess it is easy for those who have never felt the stinging darts of segregation to say, wait, But when you have seen vicious mobs lynch your mothers and fathers at will and drown your sisters and brothers at whim, when you have seen hate-filled policemen curse, kick, brutalize, and even kill your black brothers and sisters with impunity, when you see the vast majority of your 20 million Negro brothers smothering in an airtight cage of poverty in the midst of an affluent society, when you suddenly find your tongue twisted and your speech stammering as you seek to explain to your six-year-old daughter why she cannot go to the public amusement park that has just been advertised on television and see tears welling up in her little eyes when she is told that Funtown is closed to colored children and see the depressing clouds of inferiority begin to form in her little mental sky and see her begin to distort her little personality by unconsciously developing a bitterness toward white people when you have to concoct an answer for a five-year-old son asking an agonizing pathos, Daddy, why do white people treat colored people so mean? When you take a cross-country drive and find it necessary to sleep night after night in the uncomfortable corners of your automobile because no motel will accept you. When you are humiliated day in and day out by the nagging signs reading white and colored. When your first name becomes nigger and your middle name becomes boy, however old you are, and your last name becomes John. And when your wife and mother are never given the respected title Mrs. When you are harried by day and haunted by night by the fact that you are a Negro, living constantly at tiptoe stance, never knowing what to expect next, 
and plagued with inner fears and outer resentments, when you are forever fighting a degenerating sense of nobodiness, then you will understand why. Then you will understand why we find it difficult to wait. Do you see, friends, what King is doing here? What he's saying, what he's asking, what he's begging, what he is literally pleading for is that these men would enter into his story. He's saying, before you criticize my actions, stop and see the world through my eyes. Try to walk for just one moment in my shoes. You see, what King is asking of these pastors is simply, I believe this. Love me like Jesus. Love me like Jesus. All of us, friends, all of us long to be loved this way. All of us, every single human being on this planet is looking for someone to enter into our world and see it through our eyes and understand how we feel. And I'd like to offer this to you today, if I may. I want to make this as simple and practical for you this morning as I possibly can. I believe loving in this way, loving incarnationally, very simply starts with this. Listening. Learning to listen well. Learning to reserve judgment. Learning to put your agenda on hold. Learning to allow the other person to speak until he or she completes their thought. Learning to not presume to know what they're going to say and what they're going to communicate before they have communicated it. Learning to hold off on forming and formulating your retort while they are still talking. Learning to pay attention to body language as people are speaking. Learning to, as a listener, use phrases like, Is there more? What I hear you saying is, That makes sense because... Friends, listening is the starting line for loving. If we cannot listen, we cannot love. Listen to this quote by theologian David Augsburger. He writes this, Being heard is so close to being loved that for the average person they are almost indistinguishable. Is there someone in your world right now that you simply need to listen to? Is there someone that God has put into your path, into your life, that he has called you to love, and all you need to do is take the time, be intentional, stop for just a minute, and listen? I have to wonder how many relationships might be radically different if just this one little thing might change. Christ followers would stop to listen and hear and understand one another. How many marriages could be in a radically different place if only there was good listening? The power of listening is unbelievable because listening is the beginning of incarnational love. So that's what incarnational love is. It's selflessly entering into the world of another. It's what Jesus has done for us. It's what he calls us to do 
for each other. That's what it is, but let me tell you what it isn't. And this is equally as important, so do not miss this. Incarnational love is selfless. It enters into the life of the other. It puts self on hold and it restrains self, so it's selfless, but it's not self-loss. It's self-less, but it's not self-loss. Jesus fully enters into our world. He fully becomes human and experiences our world and struggles and suffering, Hebrews 4 tells us, on every level, on a physical level, on an emotional level. He experiences what it means to be you and me, what it means to be human, but he never ceases to be fully God. He never loses who he is. Another author I heard this week said, in the incarnation, Jesus became one of us without letting go of himself. Now what does that mean for us? What does that mean for us as we seek to love well? Well, here's what I believe the Bible is telling us here. As Christ followers, we must love well. It's undisputed. It's undeniable. It's, we cannot compromise on that. We must love selflessly. We must enter into the world of the other. But we mustn't lose our identity in the process. We must not... We must not cease, we must not cease to be Christians. You see, friends, in the midst of loving, loving the Jesus way, loving incarnationally, entering into the world of the other, things will get muddy. When we love this way, sometimes things get real murky, sometimes, sometimes things start to get real gray. And in the midst of that, we can very easily forget who we are, who we are in Christ. This is not the way we are called to live out the incarnate love of God. We must enter into other people's worlds without losing ourselves, without losing Christ. Some of you have experienced this. You've engaged with someone who is struggling with something. You've, someone who's wrestling, they're hurting, they're agonizing, and because you relate so much, because you enter in so fully, you begin to compromise who you are. You begin to compromise your ethics, your morals, your values. You begin to compromise the truth in order, you think, to relieve their pain. Or maybe it's to avoid conflict. Or maybe it's because you don't have the courage to have a hard conversation. Or maybe it's because you're scared of what holding on to truth might do to the relationship. Maybe the real issue is you really don't trust God. You don't have the kind of faith in that moment that God is calling you to have. But friends, here's the truth. When The Bible tells us this. When we enter into people's worlds, but we lose ourselves, we lose our identity in Christ, we let go of the truth, that is the exact moment that we stop loving them. That's when loving the Christ-like way ends. This is 1 John chapter 3. Listen to these words. Dear children, let us not love with words or speak, but with actions and in truth. We are always to bring the truth of Christ with us into our relationships. That is what love is. That's the real loving thing. See, there's this horribly awful lie floating around our world today. It goes like this. Love equals tolerance. This is possibly even more true, especially true in the part of the world we live in the Pacific Northwest. Love equals tolerance. Our our motto in this part of the world, is live and let live to each his own, right? That's how we're taught to live and love. Tolerance says, I will leave you alone to do whatever you want to do. And we've called it love. Friends, if for God, love equaled tolerance, he never would have come to earth and die on a cross. 
He would never have called us to and offered us a way to repent and turn from our sins and live new lives of hope and freedom and peace and joy. You see, God doesn't just tolerate our, our wrongs. He's not indifferent to our shortcomings. He doesn't just ignore and look past and rationalize our sin. Why? Because He loves us too much for that. That's not love. And you, in a large way, friend, do you know what tolerance really says? If you really think about the message of tolerance, here is what it really says. It says, I don't love you enough to care. Do whatever you want. I don't love you enough to care. I'm indifferent to who you are, to the choices you make, to the things you choose to put your faith in, to base your life on. I don't care. So I'll just let you be. I'll just let you do whatever you want to do. I don't love you enough to be who I truly am called to be in Christ, to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And so I'll just tolerate you. I'll choose indifference over love. Listen to this quote I read this week. Um, I, I'm full of quotes today. I, I'm sorry about that. Um, but this is my favorite one of the group. So if you're zoned out or if I've lost you, come back in for this. This is a good, good stuff. This quote just rocked me this week. The opposite of love is not hate. It's indifference. The opposite of love is not hate. It's indifference. And, and then here's the whole quote. The opposite of art is not ugliness. It's indifference. The opposite of faith is not heresy. It's indifference. And the opposite of life is not death. It's indifference. Love is an action that moves in towards someone with grace and truth. It never just tolerates them. It's never simply indifferent. And let me tell you this. Let me tell you the reason why it is so hard to love someone and at the same time disagree with them. It's because we live in a world where the foundation of relationships is agreement. We've, we've equated love with agreement. We've equated love with like. I like you and so I love you. If I like you, I can love you. If we agree and I like you, then we can have a relationship of love. But if you don't agree with me, if you don't like me, then love has no part of this deal. This is the most selfish form of love there is. Here's how it plays out. Oh, man. You know what? You have such a, you have such a great fashion sense. You have such a great taste in music. Well, why? Why do you think I have a great taste in music? Because your taste in music is the same as my taste in music. And my taste is the best taste. And since I like you, I can love you. And I can like you because you're like me. This is the most narcissistic form of love there is. And it's what our world practices. And it's what the church so often gets sucked into. We like people like us. And therefore, we love them. We are into self-love. Not the love of Jesus. Not the kind of... This is, by the way, I didn't say this to the first service, but I'm going to say it here. This is one of the reasons why having a diverse congregation is so important it forces us to love people not like us it for it invites us to enter into relationship with people who don't look like us and talk like us and watch the same tv shows as us and like the same worship music as us see it forces us to actually practice love and when we do we grow we live in a world where the foundation of relationships is agreement if you agree with me the world will tell you then I can respect you. And if I respect you, then I can accept you. And sometimes in the church, 
this way of thinking, this way of thinking seeps in and we adopt it and we, we, we live the same way as the world. If you agree with me, if you believe like me, if you have the same doctrines as me, the same theological perspective on the scriptures as me, then I can respect you. And when I can respect you, then I can accept you. This is not the Jesus way. Jesus actually takes that model and flips it on its head. See what Jesus does? He says the starting point of relationships is not agreement, it's acceptance. For God so loved the world that he sent his one only son, right? While we were yet sinners, Christ came and entered in and died for us. Long before we agreed with him, while the Bible says we were still his enemies, he accepts us. He accepts us first. See, the way of Jesus is I accept you. Come be with me. In fact, I'll come be with you. I'll even enter into your world and I'll then respect you. Because the truth is this, you are a person who is made in God's image. You are one that he loves, one that he died for. And if I'm really honest, there's a whole lot more about us that's alike than there is different. And then, after accepting you and respecting you, we may even be able to find some things we agree on. We may, in the foundation of this relationship even move towards greater agreement. But even when we don't, we can still have a relationship. I can still love you because our relationship is not founded on our agreements. It's founded on acceptance, the acceptance that I've received from God and that I now offer to you. You see, here's the deal. On one hand, you don't just sit back, pull back from relationship and, and, and lob truth, quote scripture and, and then tell people what's wrong about their perspectives and how they're feeling and correct them and fix them all up. We don't, we don't do that, but we also don't abandon truth. We don't take truth off the table. We don't take it out of the equation. Jesus did not cease to be God when he entered in. We do not cease to be Christians, to be followers of Jesus who hold to the truth of Scripture when we enter in. And so the question is this, is there a place in your life, is there a relationship where you've entered in, you've embraced the person and who they are and what they're feeling and all that they're going through, but in the process of that, you've lost yourself. You've forgotten who you are in Christ. Your salt that's lost its saltiness, Jesus might say. Maybe it's time to reclaim that. And can I just say for a second, real quick, this is hard. This is extremely difficult. This is an extremely difficult line to walk, which is, if you'll notice, is why most people don't even try to walk this line. They just choose one path or the other. They either decide they're either going to be really good at entering in, but not good at holding to truth, or they hold their identity in Christ. You know, they hold firmly to the truth, but they never really enter in. See, I'm either in without truth, or I'm, I'm, I'm with truth but not in. But it's so hard to be both that I won't even try. And then to make matters worse, these two groups of Christ followers that kind of live in these two different ways, they stand on either side of that line and they lob grenades at each other. Right? Hypocrites! Heretics, Pharisees, right? You see churches doing this, you know? 
Churches attacking other churches because of the way they're choosing to live out the gospel. You don't hold strong enough to truth. You don't enter into the lives of people enough, right? It's just this battle that we have. And the whole time, Jesus is saying, the world you will know, will know you're my disciples by the way you love one another. This isn't it. Incarnational love selflessly enters into the world of the other, but it never loses self. It always holds on to our identity in Christ. And now for our final point, closing point here. How do we embrace this? This is really, really difficult to live out. So how do we become people who can actually love this way? Back up with me, if you would, to the very beginning of this chapter. Philippians chapter 2. We're going to go back to to verses 1 and 2. I'm going to read them in a second, but before I do it, I want to say what Paul is doing here. Before he goes into this, this explanation of, hey, Jesus is the model for the way we're to love, he reminds the Philippian church, he reminds them of all they have received from God. And this is sort of a rhetorical kind of writing style that Paul has here. Um, he says this, he writes, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, and what he's really saying to the church is, do you have any encouragement from being united with Christ? And their response is hopefully... Their response is hopefully, yes, I am encouraged by being united with Christ. If any comfort from his love, have you received comfort from his love, church? Yes. If any common sharing in the Spirit, does the Holy Spirit reside in you? Does that same Holy Spirit reside in your brothers and sisters in the church? Yes. If any... Um, tenderness, have you received tenderness from Christ? Have any compassion, have you received compassion from Christ? Then, he says, if all that's true, then make my joy complete by being like-minded. And there's that same world, that same word for nail, having the same perspective, the same approach, the same attitude as Christ Jesus. You see, what Paul is telling them here is this. He's saying, the thing that drives the thing that fuels and motivates and empowers us to live lives of incarnational love is the love we've already received from God. You see, if you've received this kind of love from God, if God has worked in your mind and in your heart and in your life this way, then simply let it take root, let it take hold and live out of that love. Live in response to the kind of love that God has already shown you. Friends, this is not, and hear me on this church, I want to make this very clear. The message today, the message of the gospel is not, go out and try really hard to love people in this incarnational way by your own strength. This is not the message. This is not what Paul is saying. First and foremost, he's not saying that because it's not what Jesus says. Secondly, if you try to live this way, you will utterly fail. You do not have that much personal strength. You cannot do that on your own. The call of this passage and of all the scripture is to let the love of God sink into your heart so deeply. It's to let the power of the Holy Spirit take control of your life so fully. Let, the, let an awareness of Jesus and his love saturate your mind so completely that your love of others starts to look the same. You want to you love like Jesus? Embrace the love that Jesus has for you. You see, this kind of love, incarnational love, the kind of love we talked about today, it's never self-powered. It's always grace-powered. It's the result of all the things God has already done in your life. In the book that we've been using as sort of a semi-guide through this series, the author says this, Learning to incarnate is the sixth principle of emotional health because it assumes progress on the other five. 
It assumes that there's some emotional health happening inside of you. It assumes that God is doing some stuff in you so that now out of that stuff you can actually love incarnationally. But if the first things don't happen, you're in big trouble. It assumes progress in the other five. To the extent that I am maturing in the first five principles is the degree to which I will be able to love well. You want to know why most Christians can't love well? They haven't been loved well. They haven't invited God into the deepest parts of their lives to love them and change them and transform them. And they're trying to love as Jesus in this world by just pulling up their bootstraps and doing it by their own, on their own strength. And so this morning, friends, we're not going to finish today by saying, all right, now, who are you going to go out and love? Who are you going to go out and live this way for? Now, certainly we've thought of some people and there's some practical application here. And I want you to receive that. But this morning, the way we're going to close this service is instead by going back to the source, by as a community remembering who has done this for us, who has loved us in this way. And there are some people in our church who are going to be baptized today. Some folks from our community who want to declare publicly, I have received the love of Jesus. I have received the saving grace of God through his son and his death and resurrection. And now I want to declare that to the world through baptism. Look what God has done in me. I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Christ has done some amazing stuff in my life and now I'm going to take the transferring incarnational love that I've received from God and I'm going to be raised to new life to live it out in this world but not by my own strength, completely by His. And then after that, friends, together we're going to declare and remember this truth again as a body through the Lord's Supper. So if you're getting baptized this morning... I invite you to head on back to get ready. I'm going to ask the Spanish-speaking congregation to come on down. We've got some seats for you guys right in here. We've got some folks from that church. We can welcome them. Hola. Um, And I'm going to pray. Uh, And then we're going to worship. And then we're going to celebrate. And we're going to remember the deep incarnational love of God and that he has for us together. Father, thank you this morning for the fresh reminder that you entered in, that you get us and that you understand us and that you've walked in our shoes and that you didn't demand that we get you or that we come to you, but that you came to us and that you laid down your rights. You laid down your privileges and priorities and prerogatives in order that you might draw near to us that we might feel loved. But you didn't stop there, Lord. Then you offered us truth. You offered us the redeeming, saving truth of the gospel. Help us to be people that live this way. Help us to be people that enter in and that bring the light of Christ with us. Now as we prepare to celebrate baptism, some folks from our church, God, uh, would you encourage us Would you remind us of the power that we have? Would you come and be in the midst of our community? We love you, Lord. We thank you for your son. We thank you for the chance to be your people. And we pray it in Christ's name.